So what would you like to get across to people today, say, when we connect? Um, so people that are listening to the podcast, hmm. what's sort of the focus that you would like them to take away? I guess that people people living with dementia are just like you and I, and they don't need to be treated differently. Mm-hmm. And that they, if you are doing creative and arts projects, that they should be involved from the very beginning rather than some sort of afterthought. And that I do think there is a change definitely in Scotland and I think across the world, uh, you know, also with the Reimagining Dementia Coalition. I think people want to see things differently and there's a lot of dementia activists right now in Scotland who are, you know, shouting loud and clear. And and I guess also that, you know, the big impact creativity makes for people. Welcome to the Creatively Engaging with my guest, Magdalena Schomburger. Magdalena is a theater director and an independent creative collaborator, creative director for Bold Scotland, bringing out leaders in dementia, an honorary professor, School of Health Sciences, Queen Margaret University, Edinburgh. Magdalena and I first met in 2018 in Milwaukee during Anne Basting's Create Change Institute and have been friends since. And she has been working creatively with people living with dementia for over 20 years. She uses physical theater and a cross-arts approach to create highly visual performances which are equally enjoyable, stimulating, and beautiful. Magdalena, did you have a moment, sort of a defining experience or moment in your creative work when you realized that you wanted to focus and to be co-creating with those that have uh, a dementia? I think it really truly happened uh, during some of the sessions of the Elderflowers program. Um, so, Bruce, you know that I am former artistic director of Hearts and Minds, which runs clown doctors and elderflowers here in Edinburgh. And we created the Elderflowers clown family program for people with advanced dementia. And I think it was when I saw how much life and light people showed and how much they were capable of doing and giving if they were presented with a chance to do so, rather than just receiving the cup of tea, receiving the clothes, receiving the food. But given the opportunity with an invitation, and I always think that the pause is the greatest invitation for somebody to give the ability to join, and not stuffing the pause full with things, with demands, with tasks, with skills, but it was some of the interactions I did when I was working as an elderflower myself, and being with people who were not expected to contribute anything, not a word, not a gesture, and given the opportunity and seeing the belief of myself and, and the other people within the program, the other artists, how much people would contribute and start off with things. And then I just thought it was amazing to go with whatever the suggestion was. So it became a really true giving and receiving and I think for me, it's really humanity and a human being is all about giving and receiving. If you're no longer allowed to give, you kind of cease to exist. So it was some of those interactions. I mean, I, I can give you an example of one gentleman who was uh, with very advanced dementia, dementia on a lounge chair and 
not looking up at all. Um, and I was doing something at uh, uh, kind of a movement with, with some scarves at his feet. And nothing happened for a very long time. But something inside me kept the belief that something was going to happen. And suddenly the person moved and picked up a scarf from the air, held it up triumphantly and started speaking to me. So I guess those kind of things where out of nothing, something comes and then you can develop it further. But if I think if you're too stuck with your own ideas of where you think it should be going, you actually close all these doors. So I think those would be some of the de defining moments for me. What year would that have been when you started the Elderflower? Well, we started Elderflowers in 2001, which was a couple of years after we started Clown Doctors. And we'd done some projects, obviously, with children and children with complex uh, needs and were then encouraged by the Dementia Services Development Center to look at working with people living with dementia. I had really wanted to work with seniors anyway, because I grew up, you know, I've lived in Scotland now for 25 years, but I grew up in a small town in Austria and in Griskirchen in a, in a house with lots of different generations. And I've always loved old people. So Working with old people was something that was completely on my radar and working with people living with dementia was suggested and I was just curious and said, you know, why not? And the rest is history, I guess. Well, it seems like a natural fit. I was going to ask you that question, where you grew up and mm. um, sort of your family and the dynamics of your parents and grandparents in a yeah. multi-generational family. Did that, would that have impact your decision of where you are today, right? I I think so. I grew up in, as I said, in a small town, Grisskirchen, 7,000 inhabitants perhaps, in a house uh, that had maybe three bedrooms and where, you know, kids had to share bedrooms and, and bedrooms that were so small that later they became bathrooms. <laughs> and my grandparents lived upstairs and I just always loved engaging with them and I just grew up grew up without any fear but with the curiosity about their lives and their celebrations and whatever was important to them and I found that very intriguing mm. um, and so I had two brothers and two sisters or a family of five and still you know in touch with all my siblings my parents have both passed away and I think it's just that feeling of of ongoing family they've all got kids and nieces and nephews and they've got kids it's an ongoing Schamberger clan that I guess the boundaries between ages just start going away my my nephew is seven years younger than I and he grew up like, like my little brother so there was a, a continuum of where everybody had their place and yeah so it just seemed very normal and that's such a healthy um, environment to grow up in especially mm. as like we always talk about is if you're middle-aged, it's really important to have people that are older than you as friends and really important to have people that are younger yeah. than you as friends. And it just creates that uh, smooth transition and, and environment for support. Absolutely. Too. And it seems like you really had that with your family. Yeah. And yeah. it started to frame you in that capacity of, of working in this area. Yeah. I, I guess, so one, one other thing I was going to mention, I guess one other thing that I was going to mention is that my mother had uh, an accident. She fell off a tree when she was uh, when I was ten, 
And she was in hospital for a very long time. So I spent a lot of time sitting in her bed at 10, like for three months or something every day. And I think that has also had an impact on how I feel about healthcare and how comfortable I'm around in, in healthcare environment and the smells and the sounds and just being there. And I, I believe that that has had a huge impact, actually. And that's interesting that you say that because it makes me think back. My dad was a doctor. And what he used to do is take me, I used to love going to visit the patients with him at the hospital. Mm. And so as a little boy, and I mean, I think, you know, I look at it now because we do intergenerational programming in this framework. But back then my dad was doing it, I guess, with myself as I was just going around and he'd be with his patients and I'd be talking to the patients uh, in the acute care hospital. So, Mm. yeah, I guess these early experiences that we have sort of direct us down this pathway yeah, in some ways. Yeah. I didn't think of that until right now, actually. So Magdalena, seeing you build your caring nature with your mother and the sense of community you were building with your family, it becomes pretty clear how your path was starting to form for you as you move along. Yeah. In 2015, you did Clean Sweep. And I, I noted that you had mentioned in... Uh, the description of that production that it was sort of one of the first moves that you had taken to look at an existing theater production mm. and make it more accessible for yeah. people living with a dementia. Yeah. So how did you do that? What did you learn from that process? Well, firstly, I had embarked already a move away from Hearts and Minds in 2014. I was given a big Paul Hamlin breakthrough grant to explore my work in a different way, to so to look much more at theatre environments, dance and music, uh, rather than hospital clowning or theatre clowning with people living with dementia. Interestingly enough, there was, I think, something that coincided with that, which was that one of the main theatre venues here in Edinburgh, Festival of Theatre, Edinburgh also started doing or considering dementia-friendly events. And they came to us to Pluto La Vie and the show A Clean Sweep, which I directed, and asked us if we could do it in a dementia-friendly way. Now, I don't want to focus on this right now. I have a problem with the word dementia-friendly, actually, but we can talk about right, that a little yeah. later. But it's let's just say that's the you know, the expression that people use and they mean very well and that's very well understood. So I think let's just continue on that Mm -hmm. path right now. I I really wanted to not just do things like change light and sound. I mean, that was the obvious things to do anyway, but also really look at the clarity of the action, look at some of the colors that were being used. We, within the show, it's all about brooms and brushes and two people trying to clean up but doing everything else but with a huge amount of you know equipment um but considering for example the how surprise would work let's say if things would be flung across the stage how much time people would need to actually accept that something was coming and also the sound it would make if it had to fall on the floor so things like that or also playing directly with the audience at times that otherwise we wouldn't just to be able to incorporate them We also, in advance, had never done the show with a live band, but we had a live band on the day. And we learned a lot, but I think the venue learned a lot as well, as in they had rigged seating, which was an interesting thing. 
I think they had planned ahead very well, but they had a partner. They had a par- the city council as a partner, and I think I'm not sure how the communication flow happened completely. But I think it had been announced that there would be, out of a hundred people, five wheelchair users and maybe a few walkers. At the end of the day, I think there were twenty nine wheelchairs. Some of the really big, heavy, you know, beds that people lie in. I think the entrance, which was the usual entrance, was not completely suitable. Uh, but they managed to work that. The show went ahead with, I think, eighteen or nineteen wheelchairs on the stage, including the bed. So, I mean, part of the rigged seating was quite empty, and the performers really. I mean, they were almost performing among the wheelchair users, which they were fine with because they were prepared. They had also coincidentally worked as elderflowers in hospital environments, so they were completely fine and they were fantastic clowns. But it really needs that level of flexibility and being comfortable with that closeness to being with a person. And then also, and I think that is what I've continued in other productions that I've done later, is that you need a structure, but within the structure, you need to have space for improvisation so you can incorporate audiences responses or their their reaction to what is going on and those are actually where the gems sit and so you have to have the right kind of structure that allows for those improvisation bits in between but where the performers then again can catch the play where they've left it off so to say and you need the right type of performers to feel comfortable with that it's interesting hearing you describe that production your first experiences with that because the next big production you did was in 2017 with Curious Shoes, correct? Yeah, yeah. And when I look at, I remember in 2018 when we were in Milwaukee and, you know, it was sort of Curious Shoes was front and center for you. I remember all the beautiful, the booklet yeah. that you had and the and the imagery yeah. and the light um, and the engagement that the uh, theater performers had in your team with the people with the lived experience. Mm. So it seems like you carried a lot from clean sweep into curious shoes in the way that you handled and delivered the performance. Would that be correct? I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I I had the luxury of really thinking about that project very well before we even started. And we had a focus group of people living with dementia working with us from the onset. And that was not a tokenistic thing to do. Mm-hmm. They were incorporated in uh, the rehearsal. So we would uh, work for a week or three or four days and then present what we'd done to the focus group. And then we would kind of discuss what they had come up with and then rework. I guess what came out of that was really that I needed to have an artistic vision, but some of the things that I had envisaged would work really well. Just people were not interested. People with lived experiences were not curious about. So I decided to follow their curiosity and again you will remember in terms of curious shoes the starting point is really from the world of a person with advanced dementia who may be sitting bent over who may be in a bed whose first encounter is with your shoes or feet rather than with your face Mm -hmm. and that was the starting point and i think that even as as an image was a fantastic starting point for us the other things that i found very very important was thinking about challenges that have to do with age like eyesight and hearing so the colors were very bright and simple kind of having learned from all of that also particularly thinking that 
I wanted to focus on beauty, on beauty and imagination and creativity rather than just something to be done for people, you know, living with dementia. And I guess the other thing was that following from my Paul Hamlin Breakthrough Grant, I created a training called Artful Minds, which is an experiential training for artists of all art forms to engage with people living with dementia. And all of the performers that were part of Curious Shoes, including actually the technicians and the lighting designer, had to undergo some of that training. Oh, brilliant. And I think that also made for an insight within the collaboration that really paid off from beginning to end. I also have to say, I'm still working with some of the collaborators because obviously it created an understanding that is just very hard to reproduce if you don't have the time to go through that sort of training process. And Can you take me to the moment when you, you've you gone through the process working with the artist and the moment when you first opened and you've completed, say, well, you had the opening and you completed the, the first show. What did it feel like for you and for the team? It felt amazing and fantastic because it had truly become what I'd envisaged and it had been in my head for so long and it's not very often that you can actually say you've really achieved what you set out to achieve. And I really think it beca- it was this mixture of rehearsed routines, rehearsed vignettes with space to interact and participate in between. And the, the vignettes were not all too long and they had kind of an emotional, an emotive content. And for some people, they would, they would uh, you know, follow the whole storyline from the story from here to there. Others would just tune into little bits of it. But at the end of it, most everybody got up to dance with each other. It ended with a big dance. And it was just a big party. I'm getting goosebumps right now as I'm talking about it. And people just didn't want to leave afterwards. They had felt it was a special occasion. Uh, I mean, somebody said this was better than Prozac. <laughs> and one of my all-time favorite quotes was, I feel like I'm shining inside, mm. which was a gentleman when he was leaving. The team just, you know, we bought into this and the team was fabulous. And we were on tour a little bit. We retoured later in the year. I think it was just so satisfying to be with these special human beings because they're, you know, they're all experts of their own lives. They all have likes, dislikes, abilities. And we just disbanded all of the the label, the diagnosis. It was all just about them. And the most important thing was, and, and I think that will mean something to you as well that you know there were people coming with uh, loved ones and family carers and some with professional carers to make the professional carers uh, comfortable enough to say it's okay if somebody gets up to help with a suitcase it's okay if somebody shouts out Mm -hmm. they don't have to be and quiet it's it's okay whatever happens we're we've got this we've got this we have got you know we have a structure that we can return to and we have a lot of experience in, in engaging with, with people living with dementia. So we are not afraid. We are not worried. Please don't be either. Uh. <laughs> so beautiful, right? Mm. I remember with Raising the Curtain, our project that we currently have on the go, 
the the team of people with the lived experience and also when a lot of the theater people and the clowns that are part of the production and the musicians and such first got involved you could tell that as they moved through the process and when we had our first performance the expressions on their faces and the energy that they had after that performance i i can see it in your description of how your team felt mm. because there was just this it felt like there was an opening yeah. that they the work they had done the value of the work that they had, they had created it just created this whole new environment yeah and it was a whole new sort of learning process for them where they could take their craft and move forward with mm. it it was really it's so yeah. powerful right it's yeah. just so so powerful I, I think you hit it really you hit the nail on the head the being in the moment which is obviously a thing that comes from clowning or from improvisation the really the enjoying the moment and the not looking back but the being in the moment with the absence of the looking back opens up the future mm -hmm. and for me that is the bit that interests me it's not about life doesn't end here there is still a future even if it's hard to imagine but believing in that and believing in the beauty and the emotion that can take us forward. Yeah, and that vision in, with our project, when the longer project, the people, it's not just, a, say, the one-of. They know yeah. that it's going to carry on and it, and it keeps us mm. pushing um, to do mm. new things, to learn new things, to, to make this happen, right? So Yeah. So after Curious Shoes, you, that was 2017, 2018-ish, you moved into your next production, which was In the Light of Day. Well, actually, Curious Shoes, we retoured. We did a big, big tour of Curious Shoes in 2019, so I should have not said it. We did a big tour, which was, I think, 46 performances in 27 venues and locations. Wow. Which was quite something, because it was all the main theatres here in Scotland. In some of them, let's say, the Dundee Rip and, and the Bayer Theatre, we performed on stage with the audience sitting with us on stage, on, on the big performance stage, and others we performed in studios. But we also went to a great number of care homes. Again, it was quite amazing that the production worked extremely well with a beautiful set and beautiful lighting in, you know, at the Festival Theatre Studio, but equally at the smallest care home with no set with, I mean, basically that we performed in one care home that I think was smaller than my living room wow. and it still worked equally and I think this is probably interesting because that is why I started working on In the Light of Day which we've just we've done a research and development and I'm just working on the Creative Scotland application for full production for 2022 and that was influenced really obviously by the fact that COVID hit, I had to abandon another project, which was called Dreamcatchers, uh, to perform with people living with dementia and professional performers in a care home, which obviously during COVID was not possible. So that is currently parked, <laughs> not abandoned, but parked. And then I thought it would be interesting to respond to the situation with COVID by creating something that would be flexible, so flexible that it almost could be uncancelable. Uncancelable. <laughs> Very good saying that word. I was going to say that word, but then I figured I'm not going to... You're not going to attempt. I tried about seven times. Yeah. I couldn't say it. I was like, I hope she said yeah. it. Yeah. Well, so it, it, and in the light of day, uh, focuses on hands and gloves and beauty and touch in times of PPE and, you know, distancing. So mm -hmm. that was the starting point. 
I have a feeling it may all become a trilogy. So if Curious Shoes was the feet, the first one, and uh, in the light of day's hands, the second one, maybe the next one is about head and hats. Uh, that might be the third one. We'll we'll see about that. So I was working obviously a little bit by myself and we were working online together, but had a chance even during restrictions to get in a, get into a studio, I think one day last November. And we were all so excited about being able to get in a studio that we almost created a show in a day because we were just so, <laughs> so hyped. Let us add it. And we managed to perform it twice. So it's, it's currently, it's, it's about 25 minutes long. And uh, we performed it at Festival Theatre Courtyard and in a care home, in the garden of the care home. Uh, it's meant to be scalable to a degree that it can be performed with performers and audience outside, performers and audience inside, audience inside, indoors with the performers outdoors with windows open or closed. So really, as in wherever we are, with whatever restriction, I'm you not, are not taking any chances. <laughs> and also, it could be scalable from, you know, an audience of, I'll say, 25 to an audience of one. Mm -hmm. I don't like bigger audience sizes because I'm all about direct engagement. And I think once you go beyond 20 or 25, it becomes an, a mass of audience with for people living with dementia, we know that each of them is very different and not just because of their background, because, because which type of dementia they have and how they experience it and, and what their needs are because of that. So, yeah, that's in, in the light of day. And I think we've we've come up with some, it's it's more of a love story, this one. There was some love story element in, in the other one, but this is definitely always, I love mistakes and I love failure and I love celebrating failure so it's you know people trying to get through life and succeed and they don't quite get there um, or they need support and I think this is if you ask the audience to support what's go what is going on they will really there's something I think innate about us wanting to people to succeed so if we give the audience the opportunity to want that from the performers they will try and help mm -hmm. and that works for me. It's interesting watching your face. I, people <laughs> won't see your face because we're audio only. But as you started to speak about in the light of day, like your body and your energy started to increase and <laughs> there was a different radiance to you um, as you're thinking mm. about this new project and potentially where it can go. Oh, so thank you. That'll yeah. be exciting. Yeah. Mm. So just looking at a couple that you've done, Clean Sweep, uh, Curious Shoes, You Park Dreamcatchers, uh, In the Light of Day. When people hear of your amazing work, uh, and I think of people listening to the, the podcast, and they go, I could never do projects like Magdalena is doing. What would you say to them? Anybody can do a project. You just need to get going, I think. And if you don't have an idea for a project, get together in a room and collaborate. And, you know, if you still if you get together with artists and you still don't come up with a project, sit down with people living with dementia and ask them what they're curious about and follow their nose and your nose. And I just, yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, I have to admit, I see a project pretty much everywhere. I just look at something and I just have to hold my reins and my horses because otherwise, uh, you you'll know. have too many things on the go. <laughs> I do. Mm. I, I do. Yeah. 
looking at that area of your life and the work that you're doing, you also have another expression of creativity in it, but in a different direction with Bold. Yeah. And the Bold Project. And you are the creative director and lead facilitator of Bold. I am. Which is bringing out leaders in dementia. You say that very well. Can you speak a bit to that? Yeah. So Bold is a project funded by the Life Changes Trust. Uh, it's a five-year project, and it sits in a really interesting space between Queen Margaret University in Edinburgh and the Edinburgh University. It's not an academic project, but it really focuses on social leadership and so where everybody can make a difference to people's lives and using creativity to do so. Initially, it was a residential program. Again, because of COVID, we had to go online. Mm -hmm. Um, We've just finished our third online cohort. And it's fascinating and fantastic to see how, if you allow people to be your partners and to consider them as leaders already, to amplify that leadership potential for themselves. And I think... So if you think about our participants, they are really from all walks of life. Some have a dementia diagnosis. Uh, Some are artists. Some are people who work in theater venues, local authorities. Some work for the NHS. So it's the richness of those backgrounds and the richness of those experiences where people don't just learn from us or so where we are not the experts, but we are, let's say, the, the expert in connecting those experiences and also in terms of connecting all partners to a bold community and then enabling them to ripple out change into the world so it becomes a big wave. So it sounds like it's really about agency and contribution and purpose. Yes. What would be an example of something that you would be working on right now? So having just finished the cohort, we are right now working on an event uh, that we're doing on the 3rd of December, which is for the first time bringing all of our cohorts together. So we've got a a bold website, but we've got a bold community website with a huge amount of resources. We're also, when people go through the program, and it's a a, a seven-week online program where they have films and things to do as part of this process. And for this event on the 3rd of December, we're talking about speed flourishing. We're talking about people with a dementia diagnosis actually running workshops for other people. We're talking about um, almost doing an open house where people can show each other the art that they've created throughout the program. But it also is about, let's say there are people interested in working as part of I don't want to say focus groups. There's, we've also have a sister project, which is a policy project called About Dementia. They always need input for their projects and uh, as does Scottish government. And some people are interested in contributing like this. And for example, one of the things that I do with them is trying to strengthen their voice. It's all about stories and telling stories and having a voice to do so. So I run a lot of the, let's say, grounding, breathing, voice exercises, physical body exercises, even online. And it's to be able to encourage people to go out and make that change that they already have 
in themselves, and but all obviously uh, focused on the dementia world here in Scotland. What do you think it is about Scotland that has made them take on such a focus of awareness of dementia developing programs? I mean, you have the University of Stirling. Yeah. And that has a, a world-recognized uh, dementia program. What else, like, about the energy of Scotland do you feel that has making them a leader? Yeah. When I hear people talk in North America about, you know, innovative projects with dementia, Scotland always comes up. I think it has to do with the size of the country. Mm. Interesting enough, Scotland is very similar in size and, and uh, inhabitants as Austria. So it's it's kind of interesting that I've settled here 25 years ago. It's about the type of people that are here. I think people really care and they're quite open-minded and they're quite curious. It often has to do with, like with everything, with specific people who are forerunners on certain things. And I think it's a combination of as you said, for example, the Dementia Services Development Center, University of Stirling, ECRIT at the Edinburgh University, and but also some people within the Scottish government who, as far as I know, they wrote the first dementia strategy that happened in the across the world. In the world, okay, yeah. So I think it was the very first. Yeah, um, I knew a couple of the people who were part of this, and it was very interesting because. Instead of almost throwing money at this, they somehow managed to fire people up to contribute and to try and look for change. There was also very early on, and 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 I'm really lucky within Bold. I work with with a, a team of fantastic partners. One of them is Professor Heather Wilkinson, who works for is the director of ECRIT, and she was very involved in setting up the first dementia working group, which were people living with dementia, actually talking about what they really wanted from a government, from healthcare and so forth. Those are still kind of working as the dementia alumni and they have been almost, well, not, not replaced or not superseded, but there's now kind of quite a group of dementia activists in Scotland who are taking the work forward. Uh, but the dementia alumni in this first dementia working group, Agnes Houston and, and uh, Nancy McAdam and James McKillop, for example, they're still around and they're still writing, helping to write manuals, books for, uh, with others for people living with dementia. So, and then, I've also I'm lucky enough to work a lot with Professor Brendan McCormack, who is the head of nursing at Queen Margaret University, and he's just really a, a visionary in person-centered care, talking about flourishing where everybody should be living the best life that they can, even those who have a dementia, looking beyond those labels. So I think it has to do with maybe the size. It has to do with the right type of people. And maybe the right type of people at the right time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and what you're saying too, that you made a really interesting point, is that it wasn't about throwing money at it. Yeah. Right, it came from a grassroots growth and belief and strength and, yeah. and was able to just to draw in the skills and the abilities of mm. obviously a rich culture and an and a yeah. area that wants yeah. to give and engage. Yeah, right? so. yeah. You know, you're seeing, and I'm seeing, uh, creative engagement, the creative care movement. It's really gaining traction. Yeah. 
the areas of creating with those who have a dementia. So what do you feel is oversimplified about the approach? About the approach of using creativity for people living with dementia? Yeah. Okay. Hmm. Um, I think that sometimes creativity is used as an activity to keep people busy and giving them like a one one stop approach of here's a book of activities you do the activities and then people will be creative i firstly think that each one of us if we have a dementia or not have certain preferences about what we like to do and what we don't like to do the challenge i guess is that if you're working in a care home environment to be able to facilitate let's say, a person who would like to paint in certain ways at the same time while somebody else would like to make music in certain ways. Mm-hmm. So I I think it, it it's very easy to, again, become the creativity label. Let's do some creative activity for people. Again, it's about every single person and it's about challenging them and ourselves and aiming high. And the aiming high bit is the one that I will never let go. And the aiming high has to do also with my own perceptions and my own plans to be able to be open that there is something beyond of what I can imagine if I look at a person. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Very much so, and not diversionary. We're not looking at the creative arts and create, but as really as collaborative. And with Anne Basting saying, you know, I remember her really focusing on the work you're looking at it with artistic rigor. Yeah. Quality of the work that you push yeah. forward as a team. Absolutely. I completely agree. <laughs> I completely agree. You you as my my fellow time slips master trainer, you know what we're about. <laughs> and I knew when I threw that oversimplified out, I knew you go, what's he talking about? Where's he going with this thing? <laughs> But exactly the same answer. I know I would have done it. If somebody asked me that question, I would have went, oh, oversimplified. What the hell is he talking about? <laughs> so I think we can agree on definitely we're not going back to where we were. Things have changed. COVID has changed everything. So you're based in Scotland. You work throughout Europe. And your work could easily translate to a global audience. Can you envision some type of collaborative and creative information network, exchange network with other teams around the world? Sure. (laughs) Uh, Okay, are you asking me? (laughs) Let's do it. (laughs) No, I think, I mean, firstly, you're right. I think, so I I do work across Europe. I mean, I've been very lucky. I've also, and we've not touched on, I still run compassionate clowning Mm. workshops, or I deliver them, let's say that. That's very Germanic of me. I deliver compassionate clowning workshops across the globe, including, you know, places like uh, Palestine and Dallas (laughs) to go from one to the other. But I also had plans to take some of my projects and some of my trainings to Canada, to Toronto, which was planned during COVID, which is slightly paused. And there was the possibility of maybe franchising one or two of my projects. Uh, There was also a plan of doing a project in Taiwan with looking at their cultural preferences and stories uh, 
So I'm, as you know, it's my my biggest strength and my biggest downfall. I'm permanently curious. Mm. So if there is something about an international network, I'll be there. Uh, well, I could see it <laughs> happening. I, you know, as we look and we see amazing pockets of work that are happening yeah. all across our country and through Europe and North America and around the world. I think we're leading ourselves towards some kind of connection where we can share resources and, and share experiences. So, yeah, mm -hmm. I guess that was the, the upside of COVID that, you know, we've learned to connect online, to collaborate online, to have to do less travel, both for the environment and our own well-being and families and so forth. There's still a bit of collaboration and co-creation that happens in a room together that is very special. But I think you can find these blended methods of, of connecting. And I think, or I guess, and, and I think this is what you've said just now, is that it's given us the possibility of actually going through with this type of networks and the learning from each other and they're just doing it, really, not saying I have to raise £20,000 to be able to visit Canada and to, but to just ring up on Zoom or Riverside, whatever we own right now, Riverside yeah, or, or Riverside. Sounds like a bad Las Vegas show. <laughs> I don't know why they called it Riverside, but I'll have to ask them, actually. Um, so as we draw to a close, Magdalena, can you tell me about somebody who has had a big influence in your life or career? Now you're putting me on the spot. This is always the bit where, where people ask me who's... Because uh, I'm not easily <laughs> impressed. <laughs> I'll remember that while I'm editing the episode. i got to make gotta make this sound good. She's not easily impressed. <laughs> For all your future co-collaborators. Yeah. I'm just... Oh God, this is, this is really... Sorry, this is... No... <laughs> So now I'm asking it in the sense that I'm not I mean, asking you to pick one person that you think yeah. is your best. So it could yeah. be a range of people, right? Okay. Tell me about somebody who's just had mm. a big influence in your career. Okay. <sighs> Firstly, I actually think my mother had a big influence on my career. Uh, she was a very caring person. And I think it's not for nothing that... One of my brothers is a local GP. One of my sisters has become, and she's now retired, she's a, a, a teacher for special needs in terms of uh, behavioral problems for kids. One of my sisters was working in a, in a nursing home, and one of my brothers is probably the old one out. He was a tennis trainer, but also teaching kids how to play tennis. Mm. She was a very accepting, very optimistic person, and... She didn't mind a pause. I think that is maybe something. Another person would then be now that now as they're streaming, <laughs> would be a teacher of mine, Philippe Gollier, who kind of opened my mind towards clowning and bouffant and to play and the importance of play and playfulness. I mean, as, as we know, creativity, rhythm, humor, and playfulness are really the things that stay the longest together with emotional memory for a person with dementia. So I take playfulness very seriously and I take the pleasure of making mistakes and celebrating them very seriously. I always use it when I train anybody when I run workshops. 
I also would include unbasting in it, as in, you know, her book Forget Memory was all about looking beyond people's memory and forgetfulness, but focusing on the things that still exist and the focus on the, the abilities and the imagination and the mind. I would also include Brendan McCormack, who I'm working with now, about his approach of person-centered care and human flourishing, but also his energy and drive and kind of even driving me on to be crazier and more creative. Um, he also, and that's probably the one thing that we haven't touched on yet, that he, you know, he's responsible for me becoming an honorary professor at the School of Nursing at Queen Margaret University. And for quite a while, I had the pleasure of saying, I'm in charge of a bunch of clowns, but I'm honorary professor of nursing at Queen Margaret. <laughs> <laughs> I'm no longer in charge of a bunch of clowns. Uh, I still quite like the line, though. So I've been very lucky, but, you know, it's it's... I, I guess you can find almost something to learn from anybody that you encounter. And when I said I'm not easily impressed, it's because I was thinking about, you know, when people say, oh, he was my mentor or that person. I, I learned so much from some of the people that I worked with as part of the Elderflowers program. And that really changed my mind. There's also a lady who was one of our bold partners Nancy McAdam, who is just fabulous. And, you know, some of the people within Scotland who are part of the Dementia Working Group or Dementia Alumni, they just keep going and they keep being fabulous and they keep not giving up. Mm. Yeah. So I guess once you get going, you can think of a lot of people, Bruce. So very true, Magdalena. And now for the most difficult question that you have to answer today. All right, you ready? All right. So when are we going to have the chance to get together again in person and belly laugh like we did in Milwaukee with the crew? Oh, 2022. I hope so. I do. I do really hope. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I believe. Yeah. I believe until proven otherwise. Thanks very much for joining Magdalena and I on the podcast, which you can hear on all the major podcast platforms. And if you go to the website, www.thecreativelyengaging.com, you can find the links to the resources we spoke about today and also a transcript of our interview. So until next time, thanks again for listening and Thanks very much, Magdalena, in Scotland, and I do hope we see each other in 2022.